In English, <clears throat> the word love can mean many different things. I think it's helpful to distinguish and discriminate <clears throat> between the different meanings of this word. Because when we understand some of the differences, <clears throat> we can also begin to see the possibility of how wisdom can contribute to the growth of love, to the development of love. The first kind of love is love with attachment or love with desire. And in some way, this is the most conventional usage of the word. When we listen to popular music, or even think of love songs through the ages, almost always they're songs of longing, songs of desire. And it's no different in our time. I want you, I need you, I love you, as if that all means the same thing. <laughs> this kind of love, love with attachment, is always mixed in with a kind of wanting or a kind of greed. And so to that extent, there's some kind of unskillful or unwholesome mind states joined in with this particular kind of love. It may not appear that way to us, because when we're in the throes of a loving desire or loving longing, it can feel wonderful. You know, it can be a very soft and beautiful state of being, and that can confuse us. The very beauty of it and the softness of it can obscure this quality of attachment, this quality of wanting. Love with attachment or love with desire is always for a limited object. I haven't met anyone yet who desires all beings. <laughs> Even one is a lot. <laughs> And so we can really begin to get a sense of the difference just in the quality of the mind state, in the quality of our heart, in this kind of love from a more pure kind of metta or loving kindness. Love with attachment or love with desire always obscures wisdom. Because when we're in this state, when we're longing for a person or an object or a situation, we're not seeing the impermanence, we're not seeing the transiency of phenomena, of the situation. And because we're not seeing the impermanence, it's precisely because we're not seeing it, because our minds are clouded, clouded by longing that we're liable to attachment. Because we're not seeing the changing nature of phenomena, we become attached. We become attached to a person, we become attached to a situation, we become attached to things. And this attachment, in turn, becomes the cause of our suffering. One of the most fascinating 
aspects of this love with desire, love with attachment, is how easily it's transformed into ill will. (laughs) And it's helpful to understand why this happens. Why is this transformation from love to anger, love to ill will, so easily affected in this kind of love? When we love somebody, and that love is dependent upon certain conditions, we love them if they're a certain way, if they behave a certain way. When the conditions change, as they always do, then our love changes, because our love has been conditioned or dependent (coughs) on them being a particular way. And we can see just in our own history of relationships or among the people we know, know, how many relationships start off with a wonderful feeling of what we take to be genuine, pure love, and then something changes. Something changes in the way we are, the way the other person is. And what happens to our love? How do we feel, you know, in our very close relationships with our family or friends when they change the way they're relating to us? Maybe there's a change in their attitudes, there's a change in their behavior, there's a change in their actions. When they're not behaving or being the way we want them to be, what happens to our love? What happens to our loving feelings? This kind of love with desire is not at all reliable. It's not a reliable refuge precisely because it is dependent on external conditions. And we can't control external conditions. When the the conditions change, our feelings change. And it can give rise to a whole range of ill will or anger or aversion or irritation or annoyance, in those moments, what has happened to the love? There's another aspect of this love with attachment, a love with desire that's interesting to observe, and that is how we feel when somebody we love in this way is suffering. Usually what happens is when we see someone suffering to whom we're attached, we fall into sorrow, we fall into grief. And this is not compassion. This feeling of sorrow or grief is very different than the feeling of compassion. Just reflect for a moment of the tremendous amount of suffering in the world. There are countless beings in countless situations all over the world in great suffering. And yet we don't particularly feel sorrow or grief about it. We feel sorrow and grief for the suffering of those people who are closest to us, for the people just around us, who are near to us. And so I think it's worth investigating to see 
whether that sorrow is actually born from love or that sorrow is born from our attachment. So this is something to look at. This is something to examine in our lives and in our relationships. We can get a clue or we can get a hint of the nature of these mind states of sorrow and grief even in the expressions we use in English. Somebody is stricken with grief or they're drowning in sorrow. You know, we really get a sense of there's something unskillful in that state. So just to investigate what conditions it. Is it really a feeling of love or is it that aspect of attachment, of wanting, of grasping? These discriminations between compassion and sorrow between love with attachment and love without attachment, they're very delicate discriminations because they go beyond convention. They go beyond our conventional way of understanding what love means. Because in our society at large, and perhaps all human society, we tend to think of love as being inseparable from attachment. And so to begin to bring a refinement of perception, a delicacy of perception to these very different states takes a lot of care and it takes a lot of sensitivity. But if we're willing to do it, if we're willing to look not only in meditation practice but in the laboratory of our lives we're really willing to look, we see it's possible to go beyond conventional wisdom. And it's possible, I think, to open up to different kinds of love. So this is the first kind. It's it's the love with attachment, love with desire. There's a second kind of love with attachment. And it's particularly important for people on a spiritual path, on some kind of meditative path, to have a sense of the second kind. Because this is the kind of love with attachment that has to do with meditative states. As we go along on our journey, this journey of exploring ourselves, there are times when some very extraordinary things begin to happen. There are times when we feel a happiness a deep, deep sense of happiness and fulfillment that we may never have experienced in our lives before. A sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness. It may not have happened in these first few days. But these are states that actually people like us begin to taste, you know, as the practice develops and deepens. There are times when we experience such a profound calm, 
such a profound peace of being. There are times when the mind is so clear that the precision of insight is so sharp that we have a real sense of the possibilities of this transformation of consciousness. All of these, all of these happen you know, in the spiritual journey and what can happen along with them is a kind of attachment. We begin to love these states but it's a kind of love with desire, love with attachment. Not for sensual pleasure, but for meditative pleasure, for spiritual pleasure. One time in my practice, I've been, I've been sitting for a few months, and my mind was getting into this very, very precise observation of phenomena. This is in the most delicate and interesting way. And I'm going in each day to report, you know, in an interview to Upandita. He listens one day after the next. He gives me, in one interview, <clears throat> one of his looks <laughs> and says, you're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> Here I thought that was the whole name of the game. <laughs> is to have the mind become more subtle. And in one way it is, and in another way we can become attached to it. The mind can start clinging or wanting that level of subtlety, and so we miss a possibility of freedom. When I was doing the metta practice, I saw another kind of attachment to meditative states I began to see that I was practicing the metta more for the states that I could enjoy rather than for the gift of love. I would be saying the phrases and with each phrase I'd kind of check back in, oh, what does this feel like? <laughs> you know, and just I could feel a desire for more and more happiness and that that's why I was practicing, rather than the emphasis being on the generosity of the loving thought. So it becomes very subtle how our mind is undertaking these practices, this spiritual journey. In this regard, it's helpful to understand the complementary nature of samadhi or concentration practice with vipassana. Because concentration practices lead to many kinds of happiness. Without the wisdom of vipassana, without the wisdom of insight, we're more likely to become attached, to become identified with the happiness, with the peace, with the stillness, with the bliss sometimes. So it's important to bring the wisdom of insight, the wisdom of non-attachment, the wisdom of letting go, even into the development of these sublime abodes of loving-kindness, of compassion. The first kind of love is sort of ordinary love, sensual love with attachment, with desire. It's for a limited object, 
it's liable to change because it's dependent on conditions. It's unreliable in a very fundamental way because it's associated with wanting. We want something back from it. Second kind of love with attachment is this love we can have for meditative states, which themselves are quite pure and quite refined, but there's the subtlety of grasping at the states themselves. The third kind of love is the love of metta. This feeling of loving-kindness or loving-care is a very soft and gentle kind of feeling. There's a simplicity and a purity about metta that is not shared by the other two. It's the simplicity of the simple wish for beings to be happy. And in that wish, in the simplicity of that wish, there is no wanting. There is no bargaining. It is not dependent on anything. We don't hold back the wish if people aren't behaving in a certain way. The beauty of it and the purity of it is it's all inclusivity. We include all beings. There's nobody, no thing, no being outside of this domain of metta. And because it's not dependent on conditions, it's not dependent on people being a certain way, this feeling of loving-kindness becomes a wonderful refuge for us. It's a generosity of the heart that doesn't depend on conditions. And its great power is that there's no being outside of its domain. The Japanese poet in the 18th century <coughs> named Isa wrote many haiku poems. One of his poems beautifully expresses the all-embracing quality of this feeling of loving-kindness. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. In this feeling of metta, in this feeling of loving-kindness, there's no such thing as a stranger. That's a wonderful way of being in this world. <clears throat> I think the challenge for us is to see if we can bring this understanding of metta, this understanding of love, from the meditation hall actually into our lives, into our intimate relationships. So in the closeness and the actuality of our relationships, we can begin to see and differentiate what in our feelings genuine metta, genuine love. What in our feelings is love with desire, love with wanting, love with attachment. Because if we work with this understanding 
in the actuality of our lives, then we can begin to actually make choices. We can begin to emphasize the one, begin to let go of the other. This deepening of metta practice is a path of transforming our consciousness. It's a transformation both in the depth of feeling that we're capable of. And you may have seen, even in the course of these few days, there are times when the feeling is very shallow, perhaps even mechanical. And maybe from time to time, in one repetition of a phrase, we feel a certain depth, that we actually are in that phrase, we are in that feeling in a deeper way. This is a sign of a possibility, sign of a direction that we can be going in. We can also understand the transformation of our consciousness, not only in the increasing depth of feeling, but in the degree of our inclusivity. How many beings can we actually include? May be easy to include the people that we love a lot. And it may be easy to include all beings, because we don't know them very well. <laughs> the real test and, and sign of our transformation, of our development, is when we are in, in interaction with people that we really have difficulty with, you know, that irritate us, that annoy us, that are doing harmful things. It's a great gift to us because they are pointing out to us where our edge is, where our boundary of love is. I can love this much, but the next step is a little too much. And to have someone reveal to us where our boundaries are, where our edges are, is a great gift. One of the most beautiful examples of using this as a teaching um, is in the Dalai Lama. Because over and over again, he talks about how the presence of enemies, and it can either be a really powerful enemy or simply somebody that we have a little trouble with, but how the presence of these people in our lives gives us the opportunity to see where our boundaries are and to practice opening, to practice patience, to practice forgiveness, to practice including everyone in the shade of the cherry tree. The Buddha spoke of 11 benefits of metta. Now, one of the things I love about this practice and this tradition <coughs> is its lists. <laughs> it just has lists for everything. <laughs> And each list has a few sublists. <laughs> so there's going to be a little quiz at the end of this retreat. 
<laughs> the 11 benefits. <laughs> Sleeping well and waking easily. It would be nice to wake up happily, you know, each new day instead of waking up kind of, oh, another one. (laughs) As the metta deepens, as we actually practice and develop it, our sleep becomes easier, our waking becomes easier, our dreams become more pleasant. In Vipassana practice, in the inside practice, basically we're stirring up trouble. You know, we're really going in there and probing the psyche in a lot of different ways. And often in Vipassana, people have the most intense and vivid and often horrendous kind of dreams. In the beginning of the metta, some people have reported the same thing. The general direction, as the loving-kindness becomes stronger and more powerful, it actually does affect that level of the unconscious. You know, and it begins to affect the quality of our dreams. They become more peaceful. Another benefit of the metta practice is that we are loved by people and devas. Devas are higher beings, beings in the celestial realms. This one is not so hard to figure out. Because the feeling of love, as we know, especially when it is really a pure love, you know, love without wanting and without attachment, is very contagious. Think of how you feel about a person who is really loving, genuinely loving. When we think of people like that, we feel really loving. You know, this. There's a sense of joy that comes. Deepama was was a wonderful example of this because her love was so pure. And so just in thinking of her, the love starts happening in ourselves. One time, quite a few years ago, I was able to meet with His Holiness Karmapa. And he was another being who had this tremendous capacity for manifesting love. Being with him, it felt in his presence as if I were the most important being in the universe. It felt great. (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) And where was that feeling coming from? It was coming because of the totality of his presence and the totality of the love that he was giving at that time. And what is amazing to reflect on clearly it wasn't about me. He was that way with everybody. And this is the power. When we when we cultivate that power of love, people and Davis love us. We're surrounded in this field. One of the other benefits of metta is that we become free from danger. It goes on free from poison, free from weapons. We can take this literally, we can take it metaphorically as 
you're free from negative energies. But we also have to be a little careful with this one. I'll tell you a story. <laughs> I was in Western Massachusetts walking through the woods to a friend's house and there was this very aggressive little dog which was barking quite aggressively. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Meta protects one from danger. <laughs> So I'm walking by and I start doing my, oh, be happy, be happy, be happy. <laughs> and it came over and bit me. <laughs> Which was a good reflection on the quality of that particular metta. <laughs> Unlike the Buddha who stopped the raging elephant. <laughs> Uh, of course, it became clear quite quickly that it really wasn't meta at all. I mean, basically what I was saying was, be happy, stay over there. <laughs> you know? And so we don't want to take these benefits superficially. <laughs> they really start to work as the purity and power of the meta, the love and kindness in our hearts gets strong. Protected by deities. I mean, the Buddhist cosmology has a wonderfully expansive understanding of this universe. Generally, our view of things is quite narrow. You know, we tend to think of you know this one lifetime and this one plane of existence, and it's quite small. And in the Buddhist teachings you see a vision that's tremendously expansive, that goes over lifetimes in huge expanses of time and many planes of existence, of higher realms and lower realms. And these realms, this expansiveness, actually can be seen through meditative attainment. So it's not simply in the realm of myth or metaphor, although one could also see it in that way. One of the benefits of metta is that we actually start generating a field of protection in our lives. It's said that the devas protect us, that this energy of love attracts that protection. So as with all of this, I think it's helpful to know of the possibilities, and then to see, to test it out for oneself in one's life. When I was leaving Bodh Gaya the first time after having just been there for about six weeks or two months, it was my first time of practice. As I was pulling away in the rickshaw, my teacher left me with one little phrase, which at the time I thought was a cliché. I did not appreciate it. And over the years, I've come to see an experience of very profound significance in it. As I was leaving, he said, the Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. The truth protects those who protect the truth. And there is this quality of protection. And it comes through our practice 
of the Dhamma. It comes through our practice of metta, of loving-kindness. The ninth benefit of metta is that the mind can concentrate easily, which in turn becomes the foundation for the deepening of our wisdom. There's no profound wisdom without concentration. We need that power of mind to see things deeply. Developing metta gives us the ability to concentrate easily and quickly because our mind is not filled with the hindrances. When metta is strong, ill will is not, restlessness is not, desire is not. And so when we sit down to concentrate, quite easily the mind becomes composed. So in this way, metta actually becomes the ground or the foundation for wisdom. The tenth benefit, and one which is very beautiful to see, is the quality of inner beauty, of, ra- of radiance and serenity that begins to show in people when the metta is well-developed. And when I think of those people who have cultivated it well, it's quite amazing the beauty of their being that shines forth regardless of the particular outward appearance. But the inner beauty is so strong that that's what one sees. So this is another of the benefits of metta, that radiance. And the last one, which also has tremendous significance in the broader scope of things, is that we die peacefully. We die without fearful images. We die with peace in our hearts, peace in our mind. And if we have reached the level of jhana, of absorption in the metta, there is rebirth in what are called the Brahma realms, the realms of absorption. There's a lot going on. You may think you're just doing a few phrases. (laughs) But... You know, as Sharon mentioned the other night, drop by drop, the bucket gets filled, drop by drop, phrase by phrase. You know, slowly, this feeling of metta, this quality of metta begins to grow and deepen and expand. And as it does, all of these benefits of the metta begin to happen in our lives. Loving-kindness is also the basis for compassion. When we have this basic feeling of metta, of loving care, when we see someone in suffering, the natural response to that suffering is a feeling of compassion. And the feeling of compassion is a certain movement of the heart which is different. It has a different flavor than the metta. When compassion arises, there's a movement of the heart that wants to alleviate the suffering. There's the sense of, how can I help in this situation? It actually motivates us to take some action. 
This feeling of compassion is very different than the feeling of sorrow. It's very different than the feeling of grief. And it would be interesting and instructive to really watch in oneself and to discriminate between these different feelings. There's a story of Ryokan. It was that Japanese monk and poet and hermit you know, who wrote such wonderful poetry. It's a wonderful story uh, illustrating the fullness of his compassion. It's said that on a sunny day he would take his robe off and uh, pull the lice out of the robe and set them on a rock to sun themselves. <laughs> and then when the sun went down, he took them and put them back in his robe. <laughs> That's compassion. <laughs> there is a lot of suffering in the world. You know, when we look in any direction, in any domain, Just the political injustice and the brutality and the war and the famine. And the list goes on and on and I'm sure you're familiar you know, with it all. But I think what can happen is, especially since most of us lead such privileged lives, that even if we know that it's out there and even if we're somewhat sensitive to it, we may have the sense that that immensity of suffering doesn't really touch us. Yet when we look a little closer, when we look at the nature of the mind and body itself, we begin to see the depths of suffering that exists in everybody's lives, in our lives as well. The nature of the body. You know, for a long time it's going along fine. And we're strong and we're healthy and we're happy. And something happens. Either we get quite sick or we get old, and we get diseased, and we get weak, and we die. This is the nature of the body. It's not that it just happens to other people. This is what it means to have a body. And when we look at the nature of our minds very carefully, when we're not continually distracting ourselves, and we see the suffering that exists, the suffering of anger, or anxiety, or fear, or restlessness, or boredom, or hatred, or envy, or jealousy, there's a long list. We see that so much of our minds is involved in states of suffering. There's a profound lesson in this, and one that is essential to the growth and development of compassion. And that lesson is that suffering, that we see suffering, is not simply an individual problem. And it's not simply a problem of certain groups of people. But it actually is a universal experience. It is the nature of things. And when we see that, when we feel that deeply, the commonality of suffering in living beings, there is a tremendous bonding. There is a tremendous sense of oneness that comes because we all share in this.
that this is the universal experience. And if we can open to it, and it doesn't take much to open to it, because it's right here, if we really look, out of seeing the, the oneness of this experience, out of that comes a great compassion. It's a compassion for ourselves, for all beings, because we see the commonality of things. This compassion may be felt and expressed in many different ways. It's not that there's one rule for it. Some people may by nature be very empathetic, and so that's how they feel the compassion. Other people, it may be not so much a feeling of empathy, but just a really deep interest in other people's suffering or a great caring. And so, I think it's helpful if we don't hold a model in our minds of how we should be feeling it, but simply open to the awareness of the universality of the suffering and see what comes forth from that. We'll all be moved in different ways to do different things. You know, during the Spanish Civil War, um, I, I don't remember exactly which battle it was. You know, Picasso saw the suffering of the battle and painted Guernica. This great work of art comes out of compassion. Some people move to actually alleviate the physical pain that people are in. People are moved to alleviate the mental pain that people are in. The Buddha was moved to alleviate the pain of samsaric wandering, this endless perpetual wandering through lifetimes. We can all plug in, in many ways and in many levels. And it's all motivated by this understanding of the universality of the suffering and the compassion that comes from that understanding. There is a specific meditation that we can do to develop compassion just as there is for the loving-kindness. It is extremely simple. We begin by focusing on someone who is in a lot of suffering. We call an image of that person to mind, repeating the phrase, may you be free of suffering. Just one phrase which we repeat over and over again, directing it to that being. And it's quite amazing. The classical des description of compassion is that it's a trembling of the heart. And it's quite amazing. As we do this compassion meditation, that's exactly what happens. We begin to feel this trembling in the heart. So compassion can be developed just in our awareness of the suffering in life, and it can be developed more specifically through meditation practice. The Buddha was a master of compassionate action. And one of the most beautiful things in 
learning about the Buddha's life and his teaching is just to read the countless stories of how he responded in different situations, manifesting this compassion. Sometimes it was very gentle. It was just the most gentle, loving feeling. Sometimes it was fierce, extremely fierce. Those two of my favorite stories illustrating both sides of that. First story is the person who has come to be known for these 2,500 years as the dullard. <laughs> he had a great heart, but his mind was not too keen. <laughs> And his brother, who was also a monk in the order, and actually uh, supposedly an arhant, a fully enlightened monk, he gave this dullard a verse of four lines to learn. And this poor dullard, he would weeks studying one line, and then he'd get to the second, and the second would push out the first. And then he'd learn the second, and the third would push out the second. He couldn't get it. He couldn't do it. His brother wanted to kick him out of the order of monks. He said, you're hopeless. You know, how can you expect to learn anything? The Buddha came to know of this. The dullard was walking very dejectedly down the road. And I can just picture this poor guy, you know, <laughs> as my own memory begins to falter. <laughs> I have a certain identification with him. <laughs> and the Buddha came to know of this, and he, he came up to the dullard and said that he just started stroking the dullard's head. You know, it's okay, it's okay. You don't have to memorize these four lines. I'll give you another, another meditation. Buddha gave him a white handkerchief. He said, stand in the sun and rub the handkerchief. He asked the dullard whether he thought he could do that. That seemed, that seemed within the realm of doability. So the dullard stand, stood in the sun, started rubbing the handkerchief, and the handkerchief started getting dirty, started getting soiled. And that called up to his mind, which the Buddha had seen, previous lifetimes of practice where he had done this meditation on the unpleasant aspects of the body. The fact that if you leave the body alone, it gets dirty. And it takes this constant care to be kept clean. It called up that lifetime of previous practice, just from rubbing that handkerchief, he developed this strong dispassion, detachment from the body, he became enlightened. <laughs> so take out your white handkerchiefs. <laughs> there are many ways. The other story is of the Buddha's charioteer, the one who actually helped him leave the palace. You know, when he, when he renounced the world and went off to practice. And this charioteer became a monk, you know, in, in the Buddhist time, but he never practiced because he was coasting on his previous friendship with the Buddha. You know, they had been pals, and he said, well, I don't have to practice because I knew him when. <laughs> and this went on for years. You know, he was kind of just this lazy monk not doing anything. Finally, just before the Buddha died, he um, 
told all the monks that basically they should ostracize. This, uh, his name was Chana. They should ostracize him, and then none of the monks should speak to him. And then the Buddha died. You can imagine how poor Chana felt. <laughs> his, you know, the last, the last communication from the Buddha was an ostracization. <laughs> but what happened after feeling so badly, you know, after the Buddha's death, it inspired him to get it together, to start practicing, he became enlightened. And so compassion takes many forms. Some of us need the strokes on the head, and some of us need a little bit of a stick. What's important is that with all of that, that it actually be motivated by real compassionate feeling. The last thing I want to mention has to do with the third of these divine abodes. Divine abodes are loving-kindness, are compassion. The third one is mudita, or sympathetic joy. And this is the quality that allows us to take joy in the happiness of others. Without metta as the foundation, if we're not well-established in a basic loving feeling, when we see others' success, when we see others prospering, particularly in areas that we would like to be successful in, it's very easy for the mind to be filled with envy, with jealousy, or the certain stinginess. This quality of mudita, even though we can easily appreciate the beauty of it, it's said to be the hardest one of the three to develop. And I think we get a clue of this after having observed our minds and to see how much judging there is in the mind and how much comparing there is in the mind. And this judging and comparing gets in the way of our relationships. It conditions the way we're relating to other people. <coughs> It can happen in the context of meditation, easily. In one situation in Burma, there was one person there who had been there a really long time and was just radiant. I mean, the, he had been there for years and the fruits of his practice were so obvious. You know, his, his mind was shining. And I'd be there sitting and struggling with my metaphrases, be happy, be happy. <laughs> and I could just feel this kind of jealousy, you know, or envy of that state that he was in. And it was hard to acknowledge, because this is a shadow side of the mind. You know, we don't like to think of ourselves as having this quality especially in a spiritual context. Here, you know, we're here practicing for love and enlightenment and compassion. What's so beautiful about this practice of mudita, of sympathetic joy, is when we actually have some foundation of metta, we can practice the mudita and it will easily overcome these feelings of envy and jealousy. 
And so I started practicing. When I, when I saw my mind doing this, the particular meditation that one does, it takes a person who is doing very well, who is prospering, who is happy, who is successful. We think of them and repeat the phrases, may your happiness continue, may your success continue, may it deepen, may it grow, may it develop. And the beauty and delight of this meditation is the very quick realization that this feeling of mudita makes us happier. And so we see very immediately and intimately that somebody else's happiness is not a loss for us. It's not a loss of our own. And that if we hold it in the right way, if we hold it with this quality of sympathetic joy and actually practice it, not only do we see that it's not a loss for us, but their happiness becomes the basis for our own happiness. And so the feeling grows even stronger. This practice of mudita is a delight. It's a delight to do. As we can differentiate love with attachment, both in the worldly sense and in the meditative sense, as we can differentiate love with attachment and desire from metta, which is the simple gift of the heart, as we differentiate it, we can practice and we can develop this feeling and quality of metta till it becomes strong in ourselves and becomes the foundation then for compassion, for sympathetic joy. This practice that we're doing becomes the basis of a deep and genuine happiness in our lives. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.